you're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another Payments Innovation podcast. This is your host, Chris D'Antuana with Currency Cloud. And today I'm happy to have Dylan Massey from Interchex. Dylan, how are you today? I'm well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And today is a unique episode as we have uh, Dylan in our office here. So we have a live recording, so it spices things up a bit and gets us more feedback and and interaction here for a live version. But we're really happy to have you on today. And Dylan's created uh, Interchex. But if you could, for a background for our listeners, Dylan, if you can give a brief background on where you came from, what you've been doing, and how you uh, started up Interchex. Sure. So uh, thanks for having me on, Chris. I, uh, I know I pushed for the in-person podcast. I wanted to be able to read your face when I, whenever I said something weird that you disagreed with. But thanks for having me. I grew up in uh, in South Florida, actually. I was going to college back in 2010. So I went to the University of Chicago as an economics major. I also played baseball, much mm-hmm. like yourself, in college. And for a while, I think when I was going through school, Moneyball had just come out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought I could be this Jonah Hill character. The, the Billy Beans. The, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had this uh, kind of like more quantitative economic background and you know, I was playing baseball and I spent one summer interning with the Yankees, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, up in Yankee Stadium. And, in New York or down, down south? Uh, up in New York. Okay. Up in New York. And Yankee Corporate. Stadium. Yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, it wasn't a very productive summer, but uh, we had signed, <laughs> I remember we signed Ichiro and a few other guys and it was, uh, you know, it was fun. But anyways, you know, I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be this, you know, Billy Bean sort of guy. Yeah. And, you know, there's this uh, diminishing marginal return of sorts of being in Yankee Stadium every single day. And, you know, by the end of the year, I think it was a Boston, New York series. Oh, wow. We, um, it was a Boston, New York series. And if you like baseball, you should never leave a Boston, New York series. I wouldn't early, think so. Yeah. Right. Especially when you can pick your seat in the stadium. So, but then I left in like the first inning because I just, you know, I, I didn't care about you know, baseball too much, you know, just from being around it every single day. Yeah, so, of course. So, you know, then it became what I want to do. And a lot of my classmates were doing a lot of consulting and banking. That was pretty much the default uh, career path for mm-hmm. a lot of my classmates. And, you know, I wasn't totally sold on it. I don't think Chicago is very big on tech. Maybe they are a little bit more nowadays. I mm-hmm. think I was always leaning in that kind of direction. But, you know, just people weren't choosing that career path. And, you know, very few of my classmates actually knew that they wanted to do banking or consulting. Most are out of those industries, but that's where they started. So yeah. for me, I took a job at Goldman in risk management. And the reason why I chose that was mainly because you know I was graduating on the back of the financial crisis. So mm-hmm. I wasn't, I was fortunate that I wasn't graduating into it. So there were more opportunities when I was graduating. But you know, I, th- I think there were a lot of questions in terms of how do you model certain types of risk? You know, how do you get it so wrong, basically? Mm-hmm. And, and why did certain banks do better during the financial crisis? And why did some, you know, some banks not do as well? So I thought risk management was appropriate. I knew it wouldn't be where I would spend my career uh, mm-hmm. at Goldman, but it was, an, it was a good framework to basically carry over to just decision-making, right? So it's helped with interchecks. It's also helped with you know, choosing who I want to go out with. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, <laughs> risk management's a, you know, practical beyond um, just finance. So while I was there, I was working on trying to price the risk of really tail scenarios, mainly in the fixed income space. So Goldman and Morgan Stanley were one of the only two banks that were still involved with physical commodities. Mm-hmm. So the actual transport of precious metals or base metals or you know, oil, for mm-hmm. example, across the Atlantic or around the Mediterranean. And a really hot topic at the time was, you know, the BP oil spill had just happened. Right? Okay. And, yep. the, you know, the regulators were really concerned. The reason why we were pricing the risk was to hold capital against that risk. And you didn't want to hold too much capital because you want to put that to work at the same too little capital because then you didn't pass the, the Fed sniff test. So that was one of the things we were working on. Another thing we were working on, which has come a little bit into play with 
interchecks is people weren't getting a lot of yield after the financial crisis, uh, specifically like the mortgage desk. Mm -hmm. We weren't getting the kind of yield that we were getting prior to that. So the bank and some of our clients have kind of pushed us in the direction of, you know, can you find products that we can securitize a little similarly to mortgages, but with a little better yield. And Mm -hmm. so that led us into uh, purchasing a bunch of online unsecured loans. You know, we were purchasing auto loans, unsecured loans, student debt, things of that nature, packaging those things up and selling them out. But the big risk question, particularly around the unsecured loans, was you know, all these lending platforms that are coming up, right? The lending clubs, the upstarts, the Marlettes of mm-hmm. the world. These platforms aren't licensed and regulated to lend in every single state in the US, right? So they rely on local bank partners that mm-hmm. have the credentials. They basically issue the loan through those bank partners, and then they were selling off those loans to banks like Goldman, where they could package those up. And I guess that's the sort of the beginning of the fintech movement of uh, yeah, technical and, and, fintech without having, right. having licensing to do Exactly. So it's from the bank's perspective, it was the legality around doing something like that wasn't very clear. There wasn't any precedent saying it was not okay, um, but there also wasn't any precedent saying it was okay. Mm-hmm. So. Um, from our perspective, it was, you know, how much risk do we want to take on? If, for example, this portfolio were to be no good, you know, how much would be out? Things like that. So anyway, so I, I've been working at Goldman for a year or two, kind of in that capacity. When I was back home, you know, I, I know you spent some time down in South Florida. I was back home in, in South Florida for Thanksgiving and I ran into what would become my partner, Bob. And Bob was a, uh, Bob's been in payments forever, Bob Shevlin. And I know he'll be listening to this, but Bob was always to me, you know, like the, the the family friend that comes over and tells you how much you've grown um, since the last time they saw you kind of thing. Yeah. So that was really, you know, like my understanding of Bob, you know, prior to this Thanksgiving. And and Bob had been doing a consulting arrangement for a few companies down in South Florida. One of the companies was uh, was a, a sales-based uh, companies. So they were selling a bunch of financial products and they had to pay out a bunch of commissions on the folks that were helping them with those sales. Mm-hmm. And, and and so this company had a problem because they were onboarding these contract, you know, they were all 1099 on independent contractors and they were onboarding these folks manually. They were handwriting paper checks and mailing them throughout the sales reps that these guys were working with were all over the country. And they approached Bob knowing that Bob had a lot of experience in, in payments and system design, things of that nature. Hey, Bob, can you build us a product that kind of automates a little bit of this process for us? We looked around the market. We didn't find anything that was particularly built for our use case, which is pretty simple. It was just onboarding contractors and, and paying them in a way that wasn't a check. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of their also one of their requirements was, well, you know, a lot of these people don't want to be paid with direct deposit. So can you find a payment method that is anonymous, but quick? You know, like we don't want the, you know, the standard lag that's associated with paper check, but we do like the anonymity associated with it. So Bob's telling me this and you're, you're a millennial too, aren't you, Chris? You're, you're, you classify <laughs> fall into the bucket. Okay. And Bob assumes that the, the millennials know a lot about the, uh, right. Uh, apparently uh, all the literature says people in my generation are, uh, are ditching the corporate nine to five and hopping into this world. And so Bob was, you know, at that Thanksgiving, kind of just soliciting me for advice from a millennial perspective. What other problems are there for folks that are working in this are working in this field? And I didn't know because, you know, I had Airbnb'd my apartment out a few times uh, just to make yeah. side money or whatever. City. Considered a gig economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was considered a contract. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was just putting my apartment on on Airbnb. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience, but I was interested in the opportunity. And, and Bob knew that I was kind of like considering the leap from Goldman. I had explained to him that one of the things risk management taught me is to become more risk averse as you get older. Um, <laughs> and I, I didn't, you know, for me specifically, you don't want to make a leap or a big leap like that, especially when you have a family, kids and a mortgage and things that are uh, 
tend to keep you uh, anchored to a certain uh, income and, and whatever else. So I figured if I was going to make a leap when I was 26, it's probably a good time to do so after I had a few years of Goldman under my belt. And so when I originally started taking you know this idea more seriously of looking into what are the problems, that's where it started. And we, you know we spent a lot of time, or I spent a lot of time, maybe six to eight months, actually trying to understand what are the problems. And the framework that we used just for some perspective in terms of how we kind of approached this problem was when I was in college, I, I took a public policy class by this guy named uh, Professor Harris, Clayton Harris. And Clayton, we all sat in a room probably twice this size. And, and it was, and, and everybody was sitting in a half circle. And the class was its own metropolis sorts, as we call it. We were our own city. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had to vote for a mayor. Uh, so somebody in the class was a mayor, and some folks were aldermen. And, you know, and then the rest of us were basically just voters. And one thing that really stuck out the class was, and so the purpose of the class was, I'm going to give you a, a, an issue, right? And you have to find, pose a, a solution to the issue. Okay. Generally speaking, like yeah. any sort of public policy. And we spent a lot of time, probably 75 to 80% of the class, just defining problems because it's very easy to not define the correct problem and like build a solution that's not exactly tailored to solve it. So an example might be, there's a lot of pollution in the city. Okay, is that because there's a lot of cars uh, on the road? If so, is it, a, is it a car problem? Do we need to install bike paths? Or is it the fact that there's no affordable housing in a city? And so everybody has to commute from outside of the city into the city, which is causing the cars, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think Professor Harris's point was, you, know, you need to be really diligent about what the actual problem is here. Because if you focus on something that isn't necessarily the true problem, like maybe you'll solve that, but you could do a lot more, get a lot more bang for your buck if you actually identify what the core problem is, right? right? Because there's a butterfly effect. And it's not as sustainable, I guess, if you're only solving, you know, let's say 10% of what the Exactly. So, you know, that was our approach to gig. And, you know, like a lot of the conversations that we've been having with people were, well, there's a benefits problem. No contractors have benefits. So that was something that folks kept bringing up. There was the onboarding problem. So the issue that this part of the labor market is much more fluid. People are hired for gigs, as we call them. But you know, folks are hired for projects that last one week, two weeks, three weeks, a month at a time. And then they're gone, right? Mm-hmm. So you're hiring maybe seven people that take the place of one headcount, uh, one employee headcount. And, and the onboarding, that's not so much of an issue for employees because people hang out for four or five years. Mm-hmm. But when you're onboarding somebody and the, the amount of time it takes to bring somebody onto your platform for a week, it just becomes more of a pain point for these people. So that was that was one. The check problem that had originally been highlighted to us by Bob's client became a broader problem. It wasn't just, checks weren't just the problem. So whereas for employee payments in the US, direct deposit is kind of a clear mm-hmm. winner. If you have a bank account, you know, most, most payroll providers give you a direct deposit or paper check option. And almost everybody chooses direct deposit if you have a bank account. It was much more murky in independent contractor land. Uh, it wasn't, and there's some behavioral nuances there, meaning some companies were reluctant to onboard a independent contractor with direct deposit because, mm-hmm. you know, that person's going to be in and out, right? Like, why do I want to take the time to put you in my system if you're going to be here for an hour or two? Exactly. So th- there were some just behavioral nuances there. There was also a broader, duran- broader demand for more variety in terms of the payment methods. So, you know, there was certain people didn't want to give up their financial information. Other people felt comfortable with it, but the company wasn't comfortable with onboarding them. There was PayPal. So whereas no employee is really paid with PayPal, there was a, you know, like a big demand for PayPal. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, you don't have to disclose your personal financial, you give them your PayPal ID, right? But then there's even crypto options, there's prepaid card options. So there's uh, no clear winner. And so that was another interesting problem, right? 
There was also a data security problem. The amount of data that's being created for contractors, when you onboard them, you have to collect their tax information, mm-hmm. you have to collect their payment information, and you're collecting a lot more of it than you would with an employee because there's just a lot more turnover mm-hmm. in that world. So these were all like the, the, the whispers that we were hearing from the market. And so when we were designing interchecks, um, you know, and this happened gradually, so I, I don't want to like make the impression that this was an aha moment for us because it was definitely something that kind of evolved over time. But the way that we have and the way that we have been solving most of those problems is just a, a redesign of the entire payment platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas, and so this is some new terminology that we just defined on our own because, you know, it doesn't really exist, but we call all the existing payment platforms payer managed, meaning if I go to work for you and you hire me, I have to give you my payment information, I have to give you my tax information, and you hold the information. Got it. And then if I go to work for somebody else, the exact same process over and over again, right? So yeah. if I, if for example, I'm a driver for Uber and Uber is using the same technology to pay me as Lyft is, I have to go through the same process. It, it, the kind of the information is siloed off by payer. So, so the, the contractor doesn't have a specific profile that they can store, basically being able to control with the corporates. They're actually sending the corporate controls, what they're doing. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, you submit the information to the company. Yeah. And that's what's led to a lot of the onboarding friction, right? Because these people are working for more than one person at a time. It's what's leading to that friction on sign up where, you know, there's this short term relationship and you don't want to go through the time of onboarding mm-hmm. somebody. It's you don't want to manage 15 different payment types because it's just too cumbersome to manage for somebody that you're going to have a really short term. So there was, there was a lot of just like wacky things going on based, you know, applying the existing platforms that work well, by the way, for employees that were kind of breaking down when you introduce a new style of work. And so what Interchecks basically set out to do is create a payee managed system whereby the data actually sits in a portable account with the independent contractor. Mm-hmm. And then the companies access that information from the contractor through a similar thing like a username mm-hmm. with PayPal. So what it did was it actually simplified whole payment and onboarding process for a company because now a company just needs to collect an email address from a contractor, right? All of your 1099 compliance, it doesn't matter how this person wants to be paid. You've actually stripped the whole idea of like, how do you want to be paid? And that whole conversation that normally happens between a, an employer mm-hmm. and a contractor. In Intertex land, a company just tells us how much somebody is owed. You're owed $100. I never specify how you actually get your money. Mm-hmm. And then our platform turns to the contractor and says, hey, you know, when you are paid from this person, how do you want your money? Mm-hmm. And if it's PayPal, then that's great. We can just send an API call out to PayPal. If it's a check, we can send an API call out to a check provider and have a check cut. If it's direct deposit, do the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, but the point is, is that the payer is never aware of kind of like this sort of nuance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically aggregating the the payout feature rather than uh, receiving an, an aggregator for the, the pay-in feature, which is typical to the industry yeah. itself. To get most of your data points, getting into how you were creating this platform? Uh, know, just in terms research. of you know, where we were figuring out, there's a lot of conversations. We partnered with a few professors actually at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So Todd Henderson is one of our advisors. He's a uh, securities professor at the law school at UC. And, you know, we got introduced to Todd and Todd is working with a, another professor named Sal Churi. And Sal now works, I think he left UC and now is a partner at a, a venture firm uh, called Trust Ventures mm-hmm. down in uh, Texas. So it was conversations like with folks like those. It was all also conversations with people that were hiring contractors. I mean, like, the you know, we the, the, it's very easy for us in our shoes to get distracted by just reading material. Yeah. Right? Like you can you can spend your whole day reading payments and and have somebody else tell you about their conversations, but they're really not as good as talking to people themselves. Mm-hmm. So if they had ears, we were talking to them. If they had ears and they were willing to listen. That's how we got mm-hmm. a lot of the information. And 
And so, you know, the platform's gradually grown on back of that. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, the most important thing for us is just to be active in listening to our clients. Another thing that place was important for me was having access to like info at intertext.com. So if anybody emails info at intertext, you know, I'm CC'd on those things. So the way that the platform is, it's almost a network of payers and payees, right? So we have payers on one side and we have payees on the other side. And as long as you're in the network, you can be paid by anybody. Mm-hmm. A payer can enroll a new payee in the network. And now this payee can be paid by any of the payers on the network. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a, it's, a, you know, think of it like a, a payment network similar to almost like a PayPal, except PayPal is one of our payment options. So it's, it's really broader than that. Any payer on this network can access the tax information. So, so as long as they're paying this person of the, of the people in the network, all the people's uh, uh, contractors payment preferences are saved. So they don't have to retell some, you know, the mm-hmm. 19 other people paying them how they want to get their money. And another thing you know, that we're working towards the future is just solving some of the benefit problems. The majority of the, the benefit issues with independent contractors is due to the lack of portability of these people. When you're an employee, you have an employee-sponsored benefits program, right? The information sits with the employer, but you can't have that when you, know, you have a market filled with folks that are free agents. Mm-hmm. And so you, know, you really, if you want to solve the benefits problem in this world, you have to introduce the concept of portability. So, And obviously, it's a, the gig economy, as we call it, I guess now, it's expanding and it's ever, ever changing, I guess, year after year. It's a bigger percentage. Can you talk a bit about, I guess, your experience within this space? As I know, we spoke about earlier that there's a, there's a big difference between the gig economy and contractors at, at some point, as far as percentages go. But as we treat it, we, you know, we treat the, the, the Ubers or of the world or the Airbnbs as, as yeah. a gig economy. But if you could talk a little bit about your experience within this, this marketplace type of. Yeah. So, so we, you know, when, when folks talk about the gig economy, it's probably natural for a lot of people to think about these digital platforms, right? The Ubers, the Lyfts, the HelloFreshes, the Postmates, right? Like all, all these sexy Silicon Valley startups, right? That are receiving the billion dollar valuations. And, you know, the, the, the misconception is, you know, that this is something new. Right. Yes, it's grown because these platforms make it more easier for folks like you and me to participate by listing our home on Airbnb. But it's not the majority of uh, independent contractors. Right. Um, So, you know, at least uh, for a few of the. And by the way, if you talk to if you ask 10 different people what's the gig economy, you'll get 10 different answers. So it's, it's really, you know, that's another thing is that there's, you know, at least in the U.S., the IRS is working on it. But we don't really have a good understanding of how many people participate mm-hmm. in this part of the labor market. The definition of what it means to be an independent contractor is, is murky. Some people only look at independent contractors are, as folks that are receiving their primary income from 1099 work. But as we know, the majority of folks actually are participating as a supplemental income source. You know, mm-hmm. it's not their full-time job. They're working at Goldman or Currency Fund. They're listing their place on Airbnb, right? But, you know, generally speaking, you know, we think that probably around 15 to 20 percent of independent contractors participate through the digital platforms. Um, The remaining 80 percent are folks that work in media, uh, folks that work in construction, folks that work in landscaping. Mm -hmm. Any musician is receiving a stream of royalties. That's all 1099 income. So there's a whole world out there, I should say, that exists beyond just the immediate Uber drivers of the world. Yeah. And so and as far as details for the 1099, we get requests here and in my previous roles as well as how the importance of either payment companies or these digital platforms to be able to deliver, you know, the 1099 and, and whatever goes into that. And you got a platform off of that. So the importance for both the payee and the payor it needs to be streamlined as much as possible. Yeah. And, and we also, you know, we've talked to some companies, especially 
some of the marketplaces where you know your platform becomes more valuable as you have more contractors participating on it, right? So it's those marketplaces are very hard to build and they're very hard to knock off once they're there, right? But you know, one of the issues that some companies have is just you know just the onboarding friction, right? Like if people find that it's too difficult to work for your platform and too difficult is defined differently by every mm-hmm. single person, right? So, but generally speaking, payment information, you know, having to give somebody your your account routing number is sensitive, right? So you'll lose some folks by asking for something like that. You also lose some folks from asking for their tax information, right? For their socials and things of that nature. So, you know, one of the things that this design also solves for is from the payer's perspective, you just need the person's email address, right? And so there's very little friction to collect an email address from somebody. The way that the payers get the information is the first time somebody is paid, they have to either enroll or accept that payment from the payer the first time. Mm-hmm. So you don't get paid. You know, the, the money is there, right? But you have to basically enroll to accept mm-hmm. that money. You don't have to enroll to get involved. I see. Uh, and I know you said that you created, I guess, a back-end marketplace where the data can be shared between the different companies, the different sure. payees. Is there an interest for you guys to maybe expand and beyond payments to be able to introduce work to, between the two yeah, I mean, it's certainly an option, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Interchex is, uh, it's it can be a lot of things, right? Yeah. It's, right now, it's a means in which it's just a very easy way for a company to kind of manage this kind of work. It could also be eventually a platform where uh, you have a suite of contractors that you know have worked for certain types of payers who may be willing to do similar work for other kinds of payers. So there's certainly that angle that's definitely a play that requires a little more scale. There's Also an argument to be made for a banking product introduced to the platform, which is something that we're also uh, have on the horizon, which is, you know, how do you offer kind of like a low friction savings plan or a low friction tax withholding plan to contractors? Mm -hmm. These are all things that employees take for granted, but it becomes very difficult if you have to manage all these things on your own, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really what the platform wants to be eventually is just is a, a tool to basically just take out a lot of the friction associated with working in this kind of labor market. And and for you guys as being the, the technical platform, you don't have to necessarily get licensed to, to, to move. No. Yeah. So we're, we are not a uh, money services business. Yeah. Uh, that was something that Bob from the, from very early on was adamant that mm-hmm. we not be. And yeah, we are just technology in the same way that Venmo is technology. Right which means that we rely on folks that are money services businesses to facilitate the transactions. So, you know, what what we do is we send instructions like, hey, send money from this account to this account, but Interchex never takes possessions of the funds specifically. Got it. And then for you guys and your vendors, I guess that are the MSBs, sure. what type of relationship, if any, do they have with the corporate sending money or any? Yeah, so every, uh, every payer on our platform has the ability to offer their contractors up to as many payment options as we have. So okay. we never mandate that a payer, if a payer just wants to get onboarded and pay everybody by check, we can do that. They want to pay them with check and uh, an e-check, which is the same thing as a check, but digitally, we can do that. If they want to do check, e-check, and PayPal, we can do that. If they want to do check, e-check, PayPal, and direct deposit, we can do that as well. So the the payers have the choice of, of how they want to, what they want to offer from their perspective, it doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. From their perspective, every single time this person is owed a hundred bucks, they never specify how this person wants their money, but we give the payers flexibility in terms of what they want their contractors to have in terms of an offering. And yes, each payer on our platform will have a relationship with each of our vendors. The way that we actually built the platform is, is vendor agnostic. So for example, we would like to not rely on just one paper check vendor, or we would not, we would like to not rely on just one bank for direct deposit. A lot of that comes from my background at Goldman with just resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to have in 
an A team and a B team set up pretty much at all times for our clients. So, and that's, you know, really important, especially uh, when it comes to money movement, right? So there's a certain level of trust between person being paid and, and company making a payment. So to the extent that we can, again, reduce any sort of friction associated with one single point of failure with a vendor is something that we like to provide our clients. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And then, so when you, I guess, manage those relationships uh, between your vendors and then, I mean, you have multiple different parties that you sure. obviously need to keep happy and what you built. How does that get managed in regards to the relationship? So are you guys taking on control of uh, any issues or um, successes or requests that are coming through the platform? Or do you manage that expectations between the, the payee and the payor? Yeah, so we, um, we, we play quarterback on a lot of things. Yeah. So it really depends on kind of the nuance. Um, some issues are easily fixed by us. Other issues are not. So mm-hmm. if it's you know, if it's some kind of API issue and it's just the tech is not talking to the other piece of technology, then it is something that would have to involve one uh, one company that we work really closely with is Deluxe Corporation based out of uh, Minnesota. Maybe yeah, they're gonna. I'm gonna get in trouble for not. And, uh, and that, <laughs> Maybe it's Los but, Angeles. Um, <laughs> but you know, they, they have they were early to market with a um, this e-check offering. And you know, I don't know how much you know about these guys. We try to uh, try to preach the good word as much as possible. But you know, it's 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 fairly. It's a little bit of a misnomer, you know. It's it's called an e-check, but it's there's also an ACH product by the exact same name. Yes. So there's a lot of confusion in terms of what exactly is this piece of technology. A lot of it was developed on the back of uh, 9/11, actually, in mm-hmm. New York. So you know, you had you know the Twin Towers were hit here. A lot of the money stopped flowing in the U.S. because all the planes were grounded. Mm-hmm. So all these checks were hanging out on these planes, and uh, then the money stopped moving. And so uh, then Congress passed a bill a few years after that that said it's okay to send the digital representation of this check, which gave way to remote deposit capture, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, maybe you've used in your mobile banking app to just snap a photo of your fax. So, I mean, we work with folks like that um, to the extent that there are payment methods that require a little bit more handholding. So like less so than a, we try to automate as much as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. So we try to let you not enter direct deposit information if you don't think it's accurate. Right. So we try to kind of like bounce that off of the actual banks that you're using just to make sure that, the account information that you're giving us is actually the account information that's yours. Gotcha. And so th- there are things like that that we can do to kind of automate some of that customer service and things that are just inherent that we you know, really rely on our vendors to help us with. And what, uh, I guess, what were you hearing from either side of uh, expectations for where they'd like to be? Uh, obviously, you've uh, sort of been at the forefront to create this type of platform. What kind of demands are you hearing to help? Ex- I mean, I know you talked about what you're thinking about as far as your product expansion, sure. but just in the market in general, just requests that you might be hearing from either side, they're looking to, to have to make it you know even more streamlined as far as the process goes and the payment process here in the States. Yeah. So the the you'll hear a lot of talk in independent contractor land around the benefits. The the sticky situation is that the companies have business models that are reliant on this person being on their work of being classified as an independent contractor. Because the minute you classify somebody as an employee you have to offer certain, you know, the cost per worker goes up by something like 30%. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then the business model kind of breaks down, right? If you convert every single driver on Uber to something like an employee. Right. And so the, the problem is, is that the company Uber, for example, can't get too close to the contractors or look like they're providing too many benefits because then the IRS will look at them and say, hey, you, you know, these people, it, it looks a lot like you're treating this person like an employee. Why don't you convert them over to employee, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've actually heard a lot of conversation or a lot of appetite from companies that are looking for an intermediary to provide those kinds of offerings to the contractors because the companies themselves, they want to, 
but they can't. So there has to be somebody in the middle that's helping out with, with providing that solution. And so, you know, one of the ways that Interchex is designed, right? Like if, if you're in the network, you're a member, quote unquote, of Interchex, right? So if you're, a, if you're being paid for the platform once, you become a member of Interchex. Um, so things that we might be able to help on in the future are things like healthcare. You know, if you're an independent contractor right now, you're negotiating with the exchange on behalf of yourself. Whereas when I was working for Goldman, Goldman had a relationship with the insurance company and they were right. bundling the risk across all the Goldman employees. So, you know, without being in a certain network or kind of like just being independent, you lose out on some of the benefits that you get from being grouped with other folks. So there's there's opportunities there that we can help. There's opportunities on the credit side. One, one of the main issues contractors is the variability of income. So getting approved for something like a mortgage tends to be more difficult because, you know, banks, if I'm lending you money, I like to see stability in your earnings. A lot of times this work is very variable. So the thresholds that folks are held to are much higher than, you know, the the same threshold that an employee would be held Mm -hmm. to. So we're working on all kinds of, of things like that. I'd say, you know, a lot of the demand is there. There's a lot of demand for folks being paid out quicker. And that's not as much of an issue as, you know, with employees, right? Everybody gets paid on the same day. Nobody, you know, I don't know when I was working at Goldman, if I heard everybody, I've heard people complain that direct, you know, like you have a payday, right? And the money is pre-funded and that comes in your account that day. The instant payment feature is something that should be in our product within the next month or so. That was also a market demand, you know, but the, the thing is, is, you know, we will see in the future the growth of more and more digital payment methods. So I don't think it's, you know, whereas you had check for so many years, then mm-hmm. you had direct deposit, that was like, you know, the cool new thing, right? And then 2010, you know, 2011, all, you know, these years roll around and all of a sudden you have all these digital payment methods, some based on blockchain, some are, are as simple as a digital check, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing that we're seeing is that it's, it's becoming very hard for companies to manage a growing set of payment methods. You know, handling or managing two is difficult, but managing 10 is even more difficult. And if you want to match the preferences of the contractors that you're paying, it just becomes like a really burdensome sort of idea. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that the platform is, again, designed to handle because of the way it's, it's structured is, you know, the payer never specifies, right? Like how this person, how their contractor wants to be paid. So from our perspective, we just need to connect into the new payment methods as they come along and then adding them to the payment offering as simple as telling us, hey, I want to add this to their payment offering. So there's an appetite for benefits. There's an appetite for future-proofing payments, uh, which is something that we're trying to work towards. And then there's the appetite for just removing as much friction as possible on the onboarding process, because that's the lifeblood of a lot of these platforms. Yeah. It's just having the steady flow of folks that are interested in, in earning extra income on their platform in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit a good point there, specifically with the vendors as well. It's just that, you know, the increased payment methods, um, it's only going to expand. Sure. And the the corporates, at least that our conversations, don't want to manage, <laughs> manage yeah. that. And I think that the less friction, especially what you guys are doing, is be able to manage that profile for the beneficiary or, or, or payee that needs to be paid. So I think you really tapped on a good point. Well, Dylan, it was great to have you in the office sure. today. For our listeners, if you could give uh, the best way to contact you in over at uh, Interchex if, uh, of interest to speak with you guys. Yeah, sure. Uh, just Dylan, my first name, D-Y-L-A-N at Interchex.com. Yeah, perfect. And we'll share that uh, along with the, the summary of, of this call here. But yeah, it was a pleasure to have you in the yeah, office today. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks for joining another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. Take care. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. 
Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at CurrencyCloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.